0: The Lord's Prayer, it's the world's most recited, most misunderstood prayer. Why did Jesus teach us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven in the first place? Dave begins stressing that we must guard against doing our giving for the applause of men, and then he takes us to Luke chapter 11, where Jesus' disciples came and asked him to teach them to pray. For many years, they were the ideal couple. They belonged on the front pages of all the magazines. In fact, they were on the front pages of all the magazines. And Cindy was sharing how their relationship broke up. And what she shared was that as Steve became more and more powerful and more and more a celebrity, and truly he became one of the most famous ball players in the United States, she shared how from her perspective, More and more he was concerned much more with the image than with the reality of their relationship. He was much more concerned with the externals than he was in the genuine intimacy of their family life. And so their family life just disintegrated. She shared how they were going in to do a commercial, and she was this knockout blonde that any ball player would want his wife like that to be right by his side in this commercial. And, and she said, Steve, I've had it, just before the cameras began to roll. She said, I just can't do this anymore. It's a farce. We're just acting on a part. And Steve, she said, grabbed her by the arm and pinched it and said, you will do this. And she realized that from her perspective, a tremendous change had come over her life. The change that had come over her life is very much of an American malady. In fact, McEwen has said that the media is the message. That what's really important is the way things appear. It's the act. It's the show. And truly, this past year, with some of the problems we've seen within the evangelical community, we've been reminded how someone can be saying the words, can be praying the right prayers, can be leading even a very prosperous, prominent group of believers. But underneath, there can be just the opposite. There can be a lack of integrity. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and I trust by now that the Sermon on the Mount has been getting under your skin. Because today, Jesus is going to move from our relationship together. We've been talking with you about our relationship together. We've talked about some nitty-gritty things, like if anger just wells up inside of us, and we could tear somebody apart, and those, those ejaculations of, you idiot! We learned that that's coming from a pit inside of us. That only the Holy Spirit can cleanse and wash away and give us a new heart that will be delivered from that. And Jesus Christ has opened us up and said that murder isn't just an external act. It's an internal condition that's inside of our hearts. We've talked together about sexual relationships. And we've learned that adultery isn't just what we do externally with our physical bodies, but it's what's happening in our minds And only the Lord Jesus working in our life can help us to relate to one another purely as brothers and sisters and like mothers and sons and fathers and daughters and can help us to maintain a beautiful integrity of close fellowship but protect it from crossing over into immorality. Only Jesus can do that. And Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter and says that sexual sin is not an external act. It begins with an internal condition. And oh, how we need to pray for one another like that. Jesus goes on and talks about how important it is for us to learn how to relate to one another on those very deep personal levels. Now in chapter 6, and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus changes gears. And he goes from dealing with our relationship horizontally, our relationships sexually with one another, our relationships interpersonally with one another. Now he shifts gears and talks about our relationship with God. And chapter six, verse one lays out the thesis of the beginning of the chapter, all the way from chapter six, verse one through verse 18. Chapter six, one through 18 comes under the heading that's introduced in verse one that goes like this. Be very careful. Jesus does, is not one of those preachers that when you get all done hearing him talk, you say, what in the world did the guy say? It sounded good, it was beautiful, but I don't have the foggiest idea what he said. Now, lest I fall into that trap, because it would be a horrible thing to be trying to expose the greatest sermon probably that's ever been given and to blow it. So in case you don't get the point, it's right at the very beginning. Be careful. Watch out for yourselves that you do not do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have reward, You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying that as we think about our relationship with God, and he's using the word righteousness in this book, not the way Paul uses it of our standing before God. Here Matthew is using it in a very Hebrew sense, of acts of piety, acts of worship to the Lord. And we're going to talk about three essential pillars of the Old Testament faith which come over into our faith. But they are the, some of the very disciplines of godly living that every believer should be involved in these disciplines. As the Lord was preaching in the first century, the three things He wants to talk to us about, giving, giving, Praying and fasting, giving, praying, and fasting, those were the big three acts of righteousness. Acts which would bring great pleasure to God according to the Old Testament faith. They were the acts that someone that was devoted to God would be involved in. Those were the three foundational acts, not in order to become the Son of God, but because we are the children of God, we express our love for Him in those three ways, in giving, in praying, and sometimes in fasting under certain situations that we'll talk about. Now, Jesus says that we need to be careful that we don't do those acts of worship for just external appearance. And that's something that's very important within our church family. You see, it's very possible, whether I'm speaking or whether anybody else is participating in the service, it's very easy for us to begin to do it for the words of men, for the words of praise. For example, if I play my guitar and sing and nobody comes up to me afterwards, not at all during the rest of the week, They don't say a word about it. Then in my heart, emotionally, I begin to sing, I know I shouldn't have done that. It wasn't any good. Nobody liked it. I'm not going to ever do it again. Nobody appreciates me. And every musician in this group knows what those feelings are like because music is very sensitive. It's very emotional. And we begin to say, well, I can't sing as good as so-and-so. And what starts to happen, I'm just using music as an illustration because it can apply to everything from teaching Sunday school to working in a soccer camp. It's possible that we begin to focus on what people are seeing and it can become an image thing. That's exactly the kind of a problem that Jesus is talking to us about. He says that we need to learn to do our acts of spiritual worship. We need to begin to learn how to do them for God and not for ourselves. Not even for others in the ultimate sense, but for one another. Now, Jesus makes that point. So what we're going to talk about today is that the Christian life is not image. It's not like Steve Garvey. If that's what he got into and he was just playing a role, the Christian life is not that role-playing. It's not just having the right image, it's a question of integrity. And what we're going to learn today is how we can determine whether or not we're doing it just for the image, or whether or not we're doing it for a genuine, authentic relationship with God. And let's begin where Jesus begins with giving. Now that's a real tough place to begin. I want you to notice when we begin in verse 2, it says, so when you give to the needy, Now, I want to ask you a question. If I said, so when you give to the needy, it implies that you're doing what? That sometime or another, you will do what? You will give to the needy. I want you to see that Jesus assumes that you will be giving. Now, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you've never been born again into God's family then as soon as someone talks to you in a religious context about giving, you automatically are going to think in terms of shyster, ripping people off. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's that's the way you're going to think. And what we would want you to realize within our own church family of believers, if you haven't come to know Christ personally, and you haven't given yourself to Him, then don't feel under any obligation to give at all because we don't want you to ever feel that you're obligated. But for those of you that do know Christ as your Savior, one of the natural responses as a born-again believer is to give to the needy. It's an essential part of the marvelous way that we're able to overflow, that the grace that's come to us is able to bubble off over into giving to others. Now, the needy that Jesus was talking about in the Old Testament would come under these headings, the Levites, the widows, and the orphans. And in the Old Testament, there were many different ways that you would give to the Levites, to the widows, and the orphans. For example, if you had a vineyard, you were allowed to comb through your vineyard and take the harvest of grapes. But you were not allowed to send your pickers back through again. You had to leave the grapes that were left after the first harvest. The main harvest, you needed to leave it there. And you couldn't be greedy and try to go in, Man, we could get more profit. Because the poor of the land were allowed to go into the fields after they'd been harvested and take what was left. In the book of Ruth, we have a beautiful example of this. Of a widow named Ruth who was able to go into the barley fields of Boaz, and they would harvest the barley grain. But Ruth was able to come behind those that were harvesting, and what was left, she could gather together, and in a day's time, she could gather enough barley to be able to make bread, to be able to meet the needs of Naomi and Ruth for another day, And you remember how bountiful Boaz provided for Ruth and eventually Ruth and Boaz were married. So that story of giving to those in need became a beautiful romantic story of love and the grandmother of David entered into the line of the Messiah. But there's an example of that Old Testament graciousness. Now as the Israelite faith developed in the temple worship, there would come places where they could give to the needy. I think we have an illustration of this in the early church, this this Israelite idea of meeting the needs of those who are needy. The first conflict in the local church took place over giving to the widows. You see, there were some Hebrew-speaking widows and some Greek-speaking widows, and the Hebrew-speaking widows thought that they were being left out, and so the first church conflict developed over the distribution of these funds for the needy widows. You remember how Stephen and Philip and seven others were ordained by the apostles to administrate that practical task. How does that come over into our own church family? Something that's very important that the Holy Spirit should burden us about as a church family is meeting the needs of the legitimate poor. That needs to begin by meeting the needs of those in our own church family that have special needs very important and we need to be very careful not to be prideful about that either in giving or in receiving and I find that sometimes it's much harder to receive than it is to give but Jesus wants us to be very concerned for the legitimate needs of those who are poor now the poor in the Old Testament were not those that were lazy not those that wouldn't work when they were able to work. But we're talking about those that by sickness, by life circumstances, have gone through a very strategic hard time and they need the help of God's people. And as a church family, Jesus assumes that it's his disciples that'll be a part of our life. Also in the Old Testament, they would give to the Levites. The Levites were the class in Israel, the tribe in Israel That were the priestly classes. They were not given an inheritance. They were not given land among the other tribes. But they were to live in all the different areas. All the different tribes were to have Levites scattered out among them. And these Levites were responsible for teaching the word of God on a weekly basis, on a daily basis to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And there were laws that would govern the way that they were to be taken care of. In Deuteronomy 14, for example, it will talk about one of the great celebrations that Israel would have. And all the Israelites would go down to Jerusalem and they would worship before the Lord in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they would bring their funds. They would have a gigantic Thanksgiving feast, you might think of. It was exactly you know, in some ways like our Thanksgiving holiday where they would praise God for his provision. Now the Levite wouldn't have a harvest to bring because he didn't have any land. The Levite would not have sustenance. And so God would tell the other people to open their hearts and graciously give to the Levite so that the Levite would be rewarded for the teaching of the Word of God so that he could come and gather with all the people. Now, in the New Testament church age, that comes over in 1 Timothy with the verses. For example, in 1 Timothy, it says that the elder who is faithfully grinding out the grain, which is a beautiful word in picture of feeding God's people the word of God, teaching the word of God. It says that as a church family, we're responsible for meeting the needs of those elders within our group that are responsible to teach the word of God. So I think as we come over into the church age, we have some direct parallels between what God did under the Old Testament, Israelite community, and what he does within the church. Let me just say that that can never become obligation. It never becomes salary in the sense of, of services, uh, of payment for services rendered. It's always a gracious offering. Now, in the first century, there were some religionists that became very skilled at calling attention to themselves by giving. And Jesus exposes it with kind of a a hyperbolic statement, kind of an exaggerated statement. Jesus describes the hard attitude of these religionists that were capitalizing for image on their giving. Look what he says. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. I can just hear it. Ba And now, Pharisee Samuel is going to put a $1,000 in the plate. Yay! It's exaggerated. Nobody did that. Nobody really did that. Edersheim describes that there were big horns in the temple. And he describes some of the Pharisees walking to the temple and throwing these coins into those horns. Maybe that's what Jesus is talking about, but I really think that it's Jesus loves to teach in hyperbole because it's such a vivid picture, and you'll never forget it. You could imagine somebody coming into a church, and you're having a building fund, a building program. And so somebody stands up and says, I'll give $100,000 to this building if somebody will match me with 50000 That always troubles me. You know, why should the Lord move me to give money because somebody else gave money? You see what's really going on there. By the way, it's a great way to raise funds. You know, so if someone comes up to me after the service and say, Well, it, it works, sure it works. You know what else works? Go into downtown Dallas and as you walk in the door to the skyscrapers, look at the names on the building. Okay? We have the Baylor Hospital. Who was Baylor? Baylor's somebody. I don't know exactly who it is, but I'm sure there's a plaque. If I went to the hospital, they would say exactly who Baylor is. And that's just the way funds are raised. And I'm not making a judgment about Mr. or Mrs. Baylor. I don't know. But I'm just sharing with you that that's the way we raise funds. Now, I have a lot of trouble with that because Jesus says that we shouldn't let our right hand know what our left hand is doing and what often we're doing in our giving. You're a big business person. You've made a lot of money. It's good PR to call in the Channel 8 News and announce that you're going to make a great big donation to such and such a church. And let me just share with you, from a human perspective, there's nothing wrong with that. The tragedy is that all of your reward will be right here. Everybody will clap. It might even increase your business a little bit because they'll say, man, Eli, that guy's a good guy. I mean, he's a good girl. We ought to really support them in business because look what they do for the church. It's awfully hard not to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you have to give your money sitting right next to somebody else. And they might see the plate pass by you and they might know it's op- Karen didn't give any money this week. Don, a little bit further down the line, might look up and say, what's the matter with Karen? She's not giving today. And Karen looks at Don, and he just empties his wallet, you know, opens his wallet up and takes out the 20. I've even seen pastors, you know, when they take the offering, they'll take out like a $50 bill and, you know, kind of hold it up and then put it in the offering. <laughs> in professional circles, we call that priming the pump. We laugh about all that. But you know what we're doing when we're doing that? We're denying the same Holy Spirit, the same God, that when Uzzah touched the ark, when Uzzah steadied the ark, God struck him dead. Why? Because God will not share His glory with another. And sometimes in the New Testament age, in the age of grace, sometimes I cringe. Sometimes I'm even frightened because I know the Father is very gracious. But sometimes I cringe when the glory is going to somebody else. The glory can go to me or it can go to a a powerful business person. And that's wrong. And it also destroys that, that very delicate reality, powerful reality of God moving among us. I want to share with you, if you're not giving graciously, I want you to learn to give graciously and regularly. Not because I think God's kingdom is going to come crashing down if you don't help him out a little bit. But you're going to miss one of the greatest thrills of your Christian experience if you don't learn how to give secretly. If you don't learn how to be able to meet someone's need without them ever finding out. I remember the Lord leading Mary and I to help a seminary student out. When we were seminary students and God had blessed us in a particular way and we had a little extra money, we were able to give to help one of our friends at seminary. Just doing it anonymously, working it out so that they would never know. What a thrill that was. And man, when I would go to class with that individual, I saw that individual not only finish seminary, when a whole bunch of my friends said he'll never make it. No way he has the brain power to do it. He went on and not only finished seminary, but he ended up getting a PhD in teaching at seminary. And now he's moved on in some other situations. But how I thank God for the privilege of being able to invest like that. And we could share around the room alive. You he could share those kinds of times when the Lord has worked in your heart and burdens you to give. Don't sound the trumpet. We're not going to ever prime the pump. Don't try to get the appearance of men. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. No one needs to know what you give. You can use your canceled checks for the IRS. It'll work if you get audited. We don't want to know. We're not going to try to keep track and keep it all on a computer. That's the way a lot of churches operate. You say, well, why don't you do it that way? It would help us. You know, we could, we could be primed a little bit more. We, we need to be more disciplined. I want you to be disciplined because the Spirit of God works in your heart. The Holy Spirit alone can work in your heart to create that joy. So let's not ever do it for one another or for the glory that we might get to ourselves. Let's do it for the Lord. Jesus says this, I tell you the truth. Those that do it to be honored by men have already received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. You see, when we learn to do our giving for the Father secretly, then we have that great privilege of seeing the Father work through our gifts visibly. And that's truly one of the great rewards. One day, we will stand before the Father and even the cups of cold water that we've given out in the name of Jesus will not be forgotten. And don't laugh about that. When I was selling books for Southwestern, that was one of the greatest things that a believer could do for me. Instead of slamming the door in my face and cussing me out and telling that door-to-door salesman to get lost... I had some believers that would come and say, I can't buy your books today, but here's a big glass of iced tea. And I even had one lady tell me, she said, the Lord told us to give cups of cold water. So here's one of them right here. And in Southern California, with a smog and about 90 degree heat, that was even better than a check for a knave's topical Bible. So take the Lord's command seriously, all right? Second of all, we need to learn how to give, do it secretly, so that we're careful about our motivations, and let's analyze our motivations and be sure that we're doing it for the Lord. Second of all, our praying. And when you pray, so that assumes that we will be praying. So if you haven't been praying this week, Jesus assumes you will be praying. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Now what's going on again? Do you think that we have a guy actually walking out in the street corner, stopping traffic, and say, Oh, dear Heavenly Father, it's time to pray. Well, maybe we did. Because in the first century, I think we can get a little bit of the feel for what it was like in the first century if you think about the Islamic culture. Because when Mir and I were in Jordan, for example, three times a day, the Islamic people pray. And they do stop wherever they are. And they have a little blanket with them that they take out. And they put it down and they pray facing towards Mecca. And that's kind of an outgrowth of the kind of piety that was very prevalent among the first century Pharisees. You see, the Jew was supposed to pray several different times during the day, and they had set prayers, daily prayers that they would pray. And so maybe the Lord is a little bit more literal and not using so much hyperbole, but I really doubt that a Pharisee, you know, would just do it so publicly. But basically what Jesus is saying is that if we pray, concerned what other people think. Now just think about yourself and your own life. Some of you, as you think about your prayer, you're afraid to pray publicly. Now, we want to be very sensitive to that because I think prayer is a very personal thing. And sometimes we can have a very tender heart. So sometimes someone doesn't want to pray publicly because they're afraid they might break down or because they feel a little bit worried about the words and stuff. But I want you to stop and think about something. If you're afraid... Are you afraid because you're afraid of what people will think? And if that's so, then I would pray that Jesus' words to you today would relax you about that. Because it doesn't make any difference what other people think. What makes a difference is what God thinks. And oh, how we need to be very careful... That as we do pray publicly, because Jesus is not saying that we should never pray publicly in this passage. In the book of Acts, we have the church gathered together and praying together for the release of Peter. In Acts chapter 20, we have Paul getting down on his knees with all the Ephesian elders and they pray together. The Lord's not teaching that we should never pray as a group of believers because the New Testament instructs us that where two or three are gathered together in his name, that he's in the midst and there's tremendous power in the presence of God in that time of prayer. What Jesus is telling us that we need to be very careful when we pray that we don't pray for people, but that we pray for God. You know, I think preachers need to really be careful about that. Sometimes when a preacher feels he's gone too long, but he hasn't quite made all the points that he wants to do, what he does is he closes in a word of prayer. I'll let you in on another secret that preachers have. And you already know this. I've known this from the time I was a kid. If my dad was go- wanted to make a little bit more points, but he wanted the audience to relax a little bit because he'd already gone overtime, you say, shall we pray? And then you pray, but instead of talking to God, you talk to the people just a little bit longer. Because you can finish out your message that way and the people aren't looking at the clock to see if we're done. Okay? Jesus is saying, don't do that. That cheapens prayer. You see, it's fine for the preacher to talk to God. It's really, he needs to talk to God for the people. That's part of, of, of meeting together. But we need to be very careful not to pray with other people worried about what they're, what they're thinking, what's going on in their mind. The Pharisees were very interested, and in, probably a closer analogy to what Jesus was getting at, is the, the, what we have in our own culture when you need to have a preacher open, like maybe a community function or something like that in prayer. The average unbeliever will have an idea that you need to have a clergyman open in prayer. I think Al had this happen when he was a commissioner. You know, Al would set up preachers to come and pray. And one time they didn't show up. And it was like we're at a loss. You know, what do we do now? There's no reverend here to talk to God. How are we going to begin this meeting? And Al finally said, well, I'll be glad to do it. I can talk to him. But see, that's the idea. There's a little bit of the idea that if we have a clergyman and he uses the right words, then somehow or another that will work to have a greater pull with God. And also it brings great respect upon the person who is a pastor. I'll tell you just, you know, I'll confess another thing. Praying before football games, especially a big game, is like that for preachers. You see, I was asked to pray when we played in Waxahachie for the playoffs. But another pastor was asked to pray when we went to Texas Stadium. Now where would you rather play, pray in Waxahachie or in Texas Stadium? And what I want to share with you is that God could care less about where we pray. But we laugh. The reason you laugh is because you know that that's part of the interaction with people. And Jesus is, you see how marvelous Jesus is? Jesus gets by all that hanky-panky, all of that human stupidity, all that surface kind of stuff. And says, listen, there is a true heavenly father who's really there, the creator of the universe. And he calls you, his sons and daughters, through Christ. What a privilege it is to talk to him. And how foolish it is to use conversations with your daddy to try to build up your image. See what we're saying? So what does Jesus say? It says, when you pray, just like when we give, don't let your right hand know what you're, what you're doing. It says, but when you pray, go into your room. Some of you have, go into your closet. When I was a little kid in the King James Version, go into your closet, I always had pictures of going in this little Coke closet. You know, how many of you ever thought that? Okay, the word that's used here is, is not that small a room. It's often used kind of for a storage room that was in the middle of a house that didn't have out exterior windows. And basically what the Lord is, it's, it's once again a hyperbole. It's an illustration. What Jesus is saying is that you want to pray in a place where you'll be by yourself, where no one else could know, you say, Dave, why is that so important? He's not saying that we should never pray together. He's not saying that we should never have public prayers. But what he's saying is that our public prayers to the Father need to flow out of the intimacy that can only come when you're going one-on-one with God. And you know what's one of the most priceless things about praying totally secret, in total secrecy? You see, then your Father, who sees in secret, can reward you openly. You see, one of the things that that I'm always concerned about in my own life is, and when I doubt, is is God really there? Anybody, Anybody ever worry about that? Is God really there? We all wonder about that at times. Well, one of the neat ways to see the invisible hand of God working visibly is to talk to Him about things in your private room and then you can see him answering publicly and you can go father that's tremendous look at the way you answered prayer and nobody could have ever known about that because only you and i talked about that you know what else if you're in a room with nobody else there and all the, there's no windows nobody can see what you're doing and you spend a lot of time talking in prayer If God isn't there, you're nutty. If you spend a lot of time in a small room privately talking to God and God isn't genuinely there, you're an idiot. You see what I'm saying? Private prayer is a tremendous confession of my faith in the invisible God. That's why prayer is so important. An unbeliever will never, never understand what prayer is about except they'll think it's manipulation. Prayer for an unbeliever is always trying to get the right formula to get in touch with the power. But prayer for a believer is a private, personal, intimate conversation. And it becomes a a tremendous expression of faith. And I want to challenge you, if you don't have regular times of private intimacy where nobody else really knows, it's just you and God, then your spiritual life is impoverished. You're missing out on a great, great discipline, using discipline in a very powerful sense and in a healthy sense of doing what makes it strong for God. You've got to learn to spend time privately talking to the Father. You see, what happens, I think what happened to some of the guys that are in major pastoral positions that fell, I'm sure if we did interviews and we talked about, what about the private, personal times? You see, I can write to you about how to pray privately. I can speak to you about it today. But it's an area that I want you to be very much in prayer for me about. You see, I spend so much time running this mouth off because that's what I'm gifted in the body of Christ to do. Like I share with you, when I was up at Word of Life, in a period of six days, 20 hours of public ministry, one hour to pop. And God used that. But you know what starts to happen? You start just keep going along with that public ministry. But you don't have the private times with the Father. And that's what starts to suck the spiritual strength out of somebody. And that's pride. It's not godliness, it's pride. And that's what we need to pray for all of our leaders about. You see, our spiritual lives can degenerate into just public performances instead of private times of intimacy. And so I have to come back. And the Holy Spirit grabs me by the back of the neck and he pulls me into those private times, the time with the Father. I want to share one other thing about prayer. Jesus has been talking to us about religious people that do their pious acts of giving to be seen by men. He's talked to us about religious people who do their praying for men. He talks, though, in verse 7 about the pagans. He says this, and when you pray... Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then Jesus says, when you pray, pray an example like this. The final thing I want you to remember about prayer is it's not the formula. It's not getting the right formula. Now, that sounds like a a very surface statement to say, but it's very important. It's a penetrating insight into what you believe about God. For example, I've shared with you, when Debbie had been in that horrible accident and we're praying for her here, and then I fly to Florida and we're able to pray for her there, I want you to know that as we talk to God, it's not coming up with the right formula that will deliver Debbie it's not praying the right phrases you see some people even call me up on the telephone and said, we have a teddy bear that we have prayed over and we have blessed will you please take that into the rooms because it'll ward off the evil spirits I want to share with you something that is not biblical Christianity it is pagan paganism It really is, and and it's infiltrating the church in very subtle ways. I want you to stop and think about what that does to the character of God. God is my heavenly daddy. He is Debbie's heavenly daddy. He knows more about Debbie's situation than I do. I, as his son, come to the heavenly daddy to pray for my sister in Christ. Yes, there's tremendous satanic opposition. Yes, we're in a tremendous war. But do you for a minute think that my heavenly daddy can't hear me here in Midlothian and work powerfully to do what he wants to do in meeting the needs in that situation? Do you think that he's handicapped by whether or not I pray in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name? Yes, I need to pray according to the personality of Jesus. But do you think it's a hocus-pocus, abracadabra, the king will do something? Beware of that. That's the way a pagan prays. You see, a pagan doesn't know God. A pagan knows vaguely there's some power out there, the force or it or she or what, I don't know. But something's out there. And somehow we need to manipulate everything to try to cover the bases. I share with you, for you know, like in in some of the films, you'll have a religious person that's playing athletics and they'll want the spiritual person to pray. And then the pagan will say, because we want everything going for us, we want to be sure all the bases are covered. That's not at all what we're doing when we pray. All of you need to pray. We need to pray for our teenagers as they're traveling. How do we pray? Heavenly Daddy. Some of our precious loved ones are on the road. It's dangerous on the road. And Satan would love to cause all kinds of hurt and destruction. We ask him to meet that need. And God hears us. He hears that prayer. He responds to that. But what a difference from wondering, well, did I pray the right formula? Did I pray the right phrase? Learn that prayer is intimate talking things over with a heavenly daddy who knows what we want and what we need even before we ask him. Does that mean we don't pray? If you ask that question, what you're asking is, what prayer is for me is getting God to do what I want him to do. And if he already knows what he's going to do, then I'm not going to pray. You're missing what prayer is. Prayer is entering in to the plan of God, to the person of God. It's entering into a close relationship with God. The Lord's Prayer, as we close, tragically has been turned in many situations into a vain babbling. Not always. In fact, I can think it can be a very moving experience for a church to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. But I know that many of you we're raised in situations where at a certain time it went, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And you've rattled it off. Oh, that hurts the Savior. He didn't give that to us as a formula, as a, as, as a liturgy just to read mechanically. It's a beautiful liturgy if it's read from the heart. But in actuality, it wasn't even given as a liturgy. It was given as a paradigm. It was given as a model. And that's what we're going to talk about when I speak to you about the marvelous paradigm of getting our eyes on God's will and then getting our eyes on our own needs. First on God, then all of our horizontal relationships come in perspective. That's what the family of God is about. It's doing invisible things for the glory of God so that God can bring glory to himself by powerfully working deep in the hearts of people. Let's keep our hands off the ark. Learn how to give secretly from the heart. Learn how to pray all alone so that we'll pray powerfully together.